0: Of breaking cafe with Boundary and Barry. This is my my serious opening, Barry. Just want to put a little spice. Hey, go with us from Plymouth Meeting PA. Mr. Barry Rose. Barry,
1: how are you? I'm doing good. Jeff, is there a particular reason that you sound so serious, maybe a little sad? There is there something going on that myself. Sweet Lou and the millions and millions of brother shippers out there should know about.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I just got a little emotional there, Barry. No, there's no reason. I just wanted to do a little dramatic effect <clears throat> for all the, uh, the many fans and supporters of uh, this fine podcast. In fact, Barry, as you would say, the millions and Thank you, you're a little late on your cue there Of listeners of this fine (laughs) podcast On this edition, Barry What do we have to offer the folks? Let's see Well, first of all, Barry and I On behalf of the sainted Mrs. Baldron, The original Mrs. Baldron, My mom Will be putting the proverbial verbal boots Uh To a certain corporation Stay tuned Next, I will be offering up a movie that I watched recently on TCM, a good foreign movie. Barry, do you like a good foreign movie every once in a blue moon? I I, I love a good foreign movie. Absolutely. Okay. And we'll be offering a good one, good uh, a good crime sort of film noir from another country. That means, yeah, yeah, you're going to have to read the subtitles. And I know some people don't like that so much. Also, Barry, our match of the week, we are going, oh, we're going to Memphis. Going to Memphis, haven't been here in a hot tick. We are talking December. Uh, hi, Molly, in the background, shaking her collar. December 26, 1983. Oh, it is the macho man, Randy Savage. Ooh, yeah. Taking on the mid-American title holder. It's Terry Taylor. We will offer some thoughts as to whether or not Terry Taylor actually reached the full potential of what Terry should have been discussion topic we will be mentioning that both barry and i have wrapped up the latest season of cobra kai Offer some thoughts as well oh maybe if you're good a couple of florida man or not stories ones that have not been published in the group <clears throat> barry what do you say you ready to find uh Let's try that again. Barry, you ready to start this fine edition of the podcast? I'm a professional broadcaster, for God's sake.
1: This this sounds like an action-packed episode. So, yeah. So, you mentioned Cobra Kai, Jeff. When did you finish uh, the series? As we were recording this
0: last night, the sainted ah. Mrs. Baldrin and I uh, watched all uh, the episodes of this latest season. So, let's get right into that, Barry. Before we go to our Match of the Week and the rest of the stuff, Barry, give the folks your thoughts. And, by the way, just in case, spoiler alert. I know I have to tell some people that. Sit down and go, oh, I didn't fucking know you were going to tell us everything's going to happen. So, you know, if you haven't had the chance yet, you might want to fast forward. Oh, let's see, eh, maybe 10 minutes or so. So please, Barry, tell us your thoughts on the latest season of Cobra Kai.
1: So I, I, I liked it a lot. I will say that I think it started off a little slower, a little hokey maybe. And uh, it picked up steam as the season went on. And I really got into it. This is the year that Terry Silver, who was in uh, Karate Kid 3, comes back. And uh, it's an interesting—again, we're going to give some spoilers here. The best part about what I really liked about this year is that the clear-cut black and white lines of good guy versus bad guy has kind of been erased. There's nobody on the show that I think is a pure—currently a pure 100% heel— or a 100% baby face. I think everybody's got something to them. But some of the big heels this year, and I think we can take John Crease. We can take the, what? what is the name of the female star for Cobra Kai? It's uh, Peyton. Yeah. Tori. Uh it, it, These were two diehard heels as the season began. And by the end of the season, there there's a lot of roughening of these edges where, uh, it, you know, there's another side to Tori and we're seeing it. There's another side to Crease, which, you know, they've teased Crease previously with, is he all evil? Can he have a good side? Is it just a show? But there were so many twists and turns in this year. And what I really love about the show is that it does capture the nostalgia of the Karate Kid films, at least the first three films. And it's uh, I went back today, as a matter of fact, early in the morning. I had watched AEW last night's episode. We're recording this the day after Dynamite. And uh, I went back and I actually watched the first episode of Cobra Kai from season one. And it's great. It just everything about the show, it retains a similar vibe to the original Karate Kid, but adds a lot more context to it, if that makes any sense. So big thumbs up for me. I like the way all the storylines played out. And I think the last three minutes or two minutes of the season finale for this year has already set the tone of exactly what's going to happen next year. So I'm real excited about that. Now, I will
0: just say that I am going to disagree with
1: you. What?
0: Yes, occasionally it happens. Now, when the show originally started, the show was essentially about the relationship all these years later between Daniel LaRusso, played by Ralph Macchio, and Johnny Lawrence, played by the great William Zabka. However, at some point, and I realize you're right, they had to flesh out the uh, the characters, the people that were around them, that they affected through their choices and things they have done over their lives. This really kind of turned into a little bit of Beverly Hills 90210, uh, okay? And that was my fear as the show went on, and there's a lot of this season that's a lot of high school shit, okay? Uh, now, that being said, When the show focuses on the redemption of Johnny Lawrence, it's great, okay? When it shows the struggles of Daniel LaRusso trying to live up to Mr. Miyagi's teaching and everything that Mr. Miyagi brought into his life, it's good. I don't think it's as good as the Johnny Lawrence storyline, but it's good, okay? When you get into the stuff with the kids at high school who apparently commit, let's be honest, Felonies and face no repercussions other than they get, you know, they kicked out of school. We don't want you to come back. Uh, of course, later on, uh, yeah, we're going to talk good for you, so we're going to let you back. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. And that is really kind of uh, what I call like Harry High School bullshit, and that I didn't like so much, okay? It's not that all the high school characters are bad or I don't like, but there's it's just too much of them. I want the story to be about Daniel and Johnny, and they've kind of strayed from that. Now, let's talk about the stuff that I will speak positively of. John Creese as a character is fantastic. He's so interesting because you're right. He's not portrayed as just being completely evil. There's a side to him that, you know, basically has a reason for the way he is, okay? And this season, the way they introduced Thomas, oh, is it Thomas, Ian, help me out. Griffith, was, Thomas Ian, yeah, Griffith, yes. And his character and the background, To the Terry Silver character, the relationship he has with Crease and what started it was kind of interesting. Okay. And uh, uh, Terry Silver taking a more predominant heelish role was very interesting because let's be honest, just like wrestling, you can't keep spinning the same wheel. You have to do stuff to uh, give a little variety. And the show really is a lot like pro wrestling. Okay. In that you have. People that are characters that you're into. There are characters you're not so much into. You have heel characters. You have babyface characters. You have these storylines. There, there's a tournament that takes place during this season. Okay. And as I told Barry before we started recording, the tournament was booked just absolutely brilliantly. I don't know who was booking this, uh, you know, but it was somebody that knew what the hell they were doing. And there was uh, a, a strong uh, redemption for a character in the tournament. There was a a storyline that had been building the entire season for another part of the tournament that was resolved and it was really good stuff. And Barry's right. The last five minutes of the show, there's a late like surprising babyface turn that you don't really see coming. And you kind of go, what the fuck, man? I didn't see that. And it's awesome. And so Barry's right. There's a lot to really like. But there were also some things that really disappointed me, uh, especially with the uh, the high school stuff and the fact that no one ever faces any kind of responsibility, you know. And there were some new characters introduced that you can see are going to be more of a uh, – have a bigger role next season. Barry mentioned there's a young black kid that's introduced, and uh, he kind of uh, joins Cobra Kai uh, because of some stuff that happens to him. He has reasons for joining and then there's a character that is sort of, let's put it this way, he's the opposite of this guy. If you want to call that kid a heel, this is the baby face. Or if you want to call that kid a baby face, it's the, it's the opposite of this guy is introduced. And the interaction between the two of them, you can see, down the road, is going to become a much bigger part of the show. And also, finally, before I I go back to Barry, I will say one of the things that as I was watching the show with my wife, that we notice is, and Barry, tell me if I'm wrong on this. Anyone who is a, let's just say, a relation or a friend of a character is mentioned in passing, boom, (laughs) guarantee that person's showing up at some point later in the season or in the next season. What do you think about that, Bear?
1: Yeah, which is true, but that's where they've done a great job. So I mentioned to you uh, off air that I had gone back and I had started watching the first episode of the first season, and then literally, The first minute when Johnny—if I don't know if you remember—but Johnny is waking up in a uh, a, a hungover state, and he goes into his kitchen. He's frying up bologna. There is a photo on his refrigerator of his son Robbie, like ten years ago. Like I forget what the time frame is, but as a little kid, and uh, they plant the seeds really early, which I like. So, you know, with so many shows there's booking and and storylines that are created. It almost appears that at Cobra Kai, they've gone back and they've gone to their roots, but they had a five-year plan or something. So when you say that, you are absolutely correct. Whenever they mention a character, even if it's like one of those kind of, you know, like Miguel's father or somebody like that, without even putting a name on it, you just know that this person is going to show up. I will say you, you are right, too, about you know it, there was the improbable fight that took place in the high school that caused miguel to uh be temporarily paralyzed there was a fight in the larusso home another big karate fight you have to it's much like professional wrestling i think you have to suspend disbelief you just you know none of it makes really a lot of sense even the first episode as i'm watching it johnny's defending miguel and beats up three or four members of cobra kai and this would have been the first year they were still in the All Valley Tournament this year for under eighteen, which would make them about fourteen when this was taking place. But Johnny, you know, right? Exactly. You, everybody well, I, gets let, off. Let,
0: let, let's talk about some uh, other problems that I have with the show. Uh, both these guys, uh, uh, Ralph Macchio and Williams, they're close to sixty years old, for God's yep. sakes. Okay, and they're portrayed as if they're guys in their forties. Okay. Martin Cove, who is fantastic as John Kreese. Barry, do you have any idea how old Martin Cove is? I'm going to go on a limb. I'm going to say he's 76, 77. 75 years old. Okay. So this guy's 75 and still out there, uh, you know, putting the the stink eye on people in Cobra Kai. And there are also people in each and and not just one group. There's people in Daniel's group. There's people in Cobra Kai. And there's people in Eagle Fang, which is Johnny's group. And when they show them competing, let's just say there are actors that apparently decided to do some training so that they looked halfway, you know, like they knew what the hell they were doing. And then there were actors where you're like, yeah, they really don't know anything about karate. Like, they're just not that good. Uh, I'm just going to put it out there. Daniel's daughter, the actress that plays her, doesn't know a fucking thing about karate. Or if she does, she does a really bad job of pretending to know what she's doing because She's the one person that I, every time I watch her, I go, this girl doesn't look like she knows anything about karate. Now let's talk about something that I haven't mentioned yet. The absolute worst part of this season is during the all, no, let's remember, all Valley. So, so we're talking about a small portion of Los Angeles and Los Angeles County apparently is a big enough deal where they have their own building, okay? Karate apparently really big in this part of LA, okay? They have their own building. They have their own MC. I'll get to him in a second. And Carrie Underwood comes to sing (laughs) before the tournament. Like how fucking ridiculous was the fact Uh. that Carrie Underwood comes to this, you know, it's not even an all city, all county, all state tournament. It's all Valley and Carrie Underwood through some connection of one of the guys that is uh, one of the uh, judges comes to and not not just hi how's everybody doing a good luck in the term no she fucking sings a song
1: uh yeah so the carry so that if i did have one complaint for this year the carrie underwood appearance especially she comes out she's singing a song it doesn't fit i am happy to say that they started doing highlights of the tournament in her song so you didn't have to just sit there and watch her for four minutes but it was pointless. I I don't know Not why they're that. Carrie Underwood, she's a nice <laughs> no woman, no, but, but it just know. it didn't go with the show. I just yeah. this was completely out of left field. I thought that was ridiculous. I really did enjoy the way the tournament played out, though. And again, you and I spoke about this. There was a couple of surprises as far as the tournament with uh, somebody who won and then somebody who didn't win. So I thought that was really interesting. So what would you rate this season, Jeff, overall? You, Let's say you're giving past seasons an eight or a nine. What would you give this season?
0: Before I, I give my grade, and I'll give you one, let's talk about the guy that was the announcer, the oh, MC was of the event. Horrific. He, horrific. I told Barry, may have been worse than the guy that announced the ladies' tag match that we reviewed last week. This guy comes out there. He's so. It's not even that he's like over-the-top. I, I don't mind an over-the-top announcer, but this guy, again, we're doing an all-valley tournament. And this guy acts like he's the announcer at the Olympic games, you know, in the Coliseum, because, you know, he is saying, oh, it's Daniel LaRusso, you know, and I'm going, I looked at my wife and I go, what the fuck is with this guy? Where does he think he's at? Is he at Madison Square Garden? He, that's a very, actually, now that I think about it, he was almost doing a Vince McMahon over the top ring introduction, and it's for An All-Valley Karate, the 50th year of the All-Valley Tournament. And like I said, apparently, they really are into karate out in the the Valley, Barry.
1: (laughs) It's a big deal. You could have multiple dojos. It's a a really big deal. So he was terrible, too. And and that was actually a pretty good impression. He came across as a guy that was slightly a carnival barker. Slightly? slightly yeah okay <laughs> okay slightly might be an understatement but mixed with a guy that would stand outside the old porno theaters in Times Square and try to get you to come in so there was a real sleazy commercialized edge to him that I just felt didn't work it just didn't work at all so he yeah i didn't like it it essentially
0: reminded me of Cheech and from Dusk till Dawn the the guy that stood outside the strip joint sure Uh, Not in a good way, but just like in his, like, how ridiculous he was and over the top. But I don't know if we were supposed to laugh at him or, you know, or what, but it just uh, wasn't good. So to answer your other question, I would give it a 7.5, which is still, it's still good, but it also says that there are flaws in the game here. So Barry, a little story time for the listeners. Are you ready for a little story time, Uncle Barry? Jeff, can I get a cup of coffee and a, and a biscuit of some sort? As yeah. You and just maybe curl up on the couch with Ozzy, okay. get a nice pillow. If there's anyone else there with you, you can curl up with them instead of Ozzy. But I have a story, uh, and, uh, it involves my mom, believe it or not. Uh, and something that happened to her that just really kind of cheesed me off. And, uh, I actually mentioned it to Barry before and Barry actually has a slight connection to this case also. So let me just tell you, my parents were for, I want to just say more than years, it was decades, were members of the Hilton Honors uh, Point System. Okay. And what that entails, uh, Barry, chime in if I'm saying anything inaccurate. Uh, as you go and stay at a various Hilton uh, hotel, and there are, uh, what are some of the other ones besides uh, Hilton, Barry? Well, like, what are some of the other
1: hotels that are involved in the Hilton chain? So, I mean, well, Hilton is, uh, my God, they own a lot, a Doubletree by Hilton. They, they've they got a bunch of, you know, and, and things have opened up, too. They may even have home two suites now, Yes, which I believe is a Hilton property. But one thing you'll see is uh, the two biggest chains, or the three biggest chains currently that I'm aware of, would be Hilton Marriott and IHG. IHG was, uh, for years, a uh, holiday in. Yeah, and, and, and Lou like pointing
0: out Hampton Inn, too, uh, is a place that we've stayed at more than once. That's Hilton, that, right? That's yes. a Hilton. So, anyway, so what happens is my parents had this for decades, okay? And of course, with the recent loss of my dad, everything happens once you pass away. And, you know, I I think I've told you the story, Barry, that my father in law, Hank, uh, when he passed away, uh, it's been over five years ago now. Wow, maybe even longer than that. That's like kind of scary to think about. He was receiving his Social Security payments and stuff like that. He literally died on the 31st of October. Okay. And of course his check would go into his account. His social security check would go into his account on the 1st of November as as it was scheduled. He dies on the 31st. Boom. They stopped the payment on that check going into his account. I mean, it was like, uh, I don't know who they've got monitoring that, but we need to have them in charge of uh, other stuff because they are right on top of it. When you die, they take that stuff away from you. Pronto. So what happens is one of the things my parents had done it was a very thoughtful gesture. i discussed recently my uh, my trip up to South Bend to see a Notre Dame game in November, and my parents had, for my birthday in October, before my dad passed away, had given us a gift of you know they were going to you know take care of our hotel stay up in uh, up in South Bend, which was very gracious of them, and we were very appreciative. And so uh, we took care of that. Well, so what happens is with my father's death and stuff after that. My mom, as I said, it wasn't just my dad who had the Hilton Honors points. My mom was on the account too. It was my mom and dad. And so uh, they also, as part of that, I believe they had like a Hilton Honors Visa card or something along those lines. And they didn't just use it when they would go and stay at a hotel. They would go, you know, if they go to Publix and buy groceries, okay, they would use their Hilton Honors. uh, They had to help accumulate whatever, you know, uh, points you might get towards a future hotel stay. So, my mom was going to uh, purchase groceries at uh Publix, and she gets there and she goes to pay for it and the cards' declined and so you know my sister's with my mom, yeah that's kind of strange well, go ahead, try it ahead I, I I know there's money in the account, and so they try it again, nope, decline, try it again, nope, decline. They go to a different register and the different register nope, sorry, declined, so when they get home. They call up, uh, the whether it's the card or the Hilton Honors account services, and they explain the situation. And, you know, they said, well, we know we have money in the account. Why why is uh, this card being declined? Well, the card's declined uh, because uh, the primary uh, person on the card uh, is deceased. And my mother said, well, there were two people on the account, and I'm still alive, and I know I'm still alive because I'm the one that pays the bills on this because she's the one that writes the, the checks or going, you know, my mom's old school. She doesn't go online and pay the bill. She writes a checkout, you know, and stuff like that. She's I'm the one that signs the checks and, and sends in the money. I'm still active on the account. You know, it's not like my dad was the one that was the, you know, the only person on the account. And my dad was the one that was signing the checks and my mom just happened to be there. No, she was on the account. She was the person that paid the account, but the people at Hilton Honors then tell my mom, well, you weren't the primary person on the account. Because the account was under apparently you know, the name Lawrence Bowdrin, my father, and Mary Bowdrin, my sainted mother. But my dad's name was on the account first. So in their eyes, Barry, he was the primary person on the account. And after he died, they closed the account. Even though there were two people on the account, they closed the account. And not only that, Barry, guess what else they did at Hilton Honors? Oh, they took away all those points they accumulated over the decades of time using Hilton Honors. All those points, the ones that paid for my stay up in South Bend, okay? The ones that, you know, were out there that they had earned were taken away by Hilton Honors. Again, not because both people were deceased, because one person on the account was deceased. And it was the person whose name was on the account first was deceased. So, oh, even though the account's still being paid on, we're taking away all those points that you rightfully earned. Barry, you're a Hilton Honors uh, account holder, aren't you? I am, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, Barry, why don't you uh, tell the folks what you had to tell me when you... Uh, when you heard this story. <laughs> yes. uh, I think you had
1: some thoughts. I did have some thoughts, Jeff, with this. So, uh, first questions asked... With this, too, there was no attempt made to contact your mother when they were closing this account. Instead, she was blindly notified as she was trying to make a purchase at a grocery store. Would that be correct? At Publix. All right. So that let's well, just hope she wasn't trying to buy a nice uh, chicken tender sub there, Barry. Oh, could you imagine a fresh Publix sub made for you and you're trying to pay for it and your credit card is declined because they've closed the account? Without technically notifying you of that, yeah, uh, I'm guessing Barry Rose would have been mildly upset. Well, when you told me this story, I was mildly upset, and I was mildly upset for for a bunch of reasons too. So they never contacted your mom. How did they find out that your father died?
0: I, you know, I'm guessing like anybody else, they went through Social Security, or they, you know, I, it's always weird. Like that's a that's such a, a fair question. I'm sure there's some procedural. A way that they go about finding when people have have passed on or deceased and they can, you know, it's not just them, uh, you know, whether it's different banking institutions, different, uh, you know, governmental agencies that need to be uh, kept abreast of uh, when someone has uh, met their ultimate demise. I'm trying to figure out a nice way to say dead, Uh, you know, but they found out.
1: Uh, So the answer to the question is, I don't know. So. With that too, and I think that so as somebody that has uh, traveled a lot over the last few years, and even this year, I've stayed in a lot of Hilton. and I only generally only stay in Hilton or Marriott properties. I'm a member of both, which is why I do it to accumulate the. You're points. a double dipper. I am a double dipper, and I do it. I almost always stay in a pet friendly hotel because Ozzy's always with me. But you deal with, and I'll say this in the nicest possible: you deal with a lot of fucking incompetence when you're dealing with people. That so you're That's a
0: nice not... way of putting
1: it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was trying to be diplomatic, Jeff. You're not talking to the hotel directly, and that really irritates the shit out of me. You get transferred to some sort of call center, whether it's for Hilton or Marriott. Now there's independent call centers that deal with all types of hotels. So it becomes- No, they, well, Barry, Barry, I do mean
0: interrupt you. The people Certainly. that you're talking to,
1: are you trying to say that they're not actively engaged in business with the Hilton Corporation? Yeah, this is a free, I went through this in shit over Thanksgiving as I was headed down to Florida. I had forgotten to make a hotel reservation at a Hilton or a Marriott property, dog friendly in Georgia. And I had to stay at what was literally a shithole. And I I forget what it was called. It was some suites, big suites. It wasn't a Candlewood or a Homewood or a residence in which we've stayed at in Lutz, Florida. But I had to call some 1-800 number. That was not affiliated, because I asked the hotel, was not affiliated with the hotel at all. It was literally a call center, and I was overcharged. It was a nightmare. Did English, you speak
0: to someone whose name was Bill, even though that didn't sound like what their name was? Yeah. Do so you get what I'm inferring the, there, Barry?
1: I do, it, and I'm going to cut through that, Jeff, and let's be honest. So what you are inferring with that is that uh, there are a lot of call centers that are handled outside of the United States, and we're not talking about Canada. We're talking about in, you know, sometimes India or Bangladesh, and uh, a lot of times their names are Bill, but the accent is so deep, it's difficult to understand them. I think a lot of decisions are made at this level. So instead of trying to get some sort of management, I'm assuming, Jeff, as difficult as it is for me to speak to somebody, that it's probably equally as, as difficult for some of these agents to get a manager in the United States on the phone. I could understand to some degree canceling a credit card, but if you were doing business the right way, wouldn't you contact the other person whose name is on the account? That being said, Jeff, it is inexcusable to take away these points because your father wasn't traveling to these hotels by himself. Your mother's name's on the account. They did this jointly as a couple because they were married for 60-something years. 70. 70 fucking years, Hilton and Marriott. So Hilton, I'm talking to you. I'm calling you out specifically. Someone needs to call Hilton, needs to call the Hilton Rewards uh, hotline, explain this situation and demand that those points are returned to that account or no member of your family nor your extended family, nor the brother shippers who listen to this podcast on a weekly basis and then Patreon content, which is dropped twice a month. If you're not getting the Patreon, you're making a huge mistake. It's been fantastic lately. But the brothership needs to get behind this and demand that Hilton restore these points, or you're going to lose all of the business for the brothershipper, including myself, and I travel enough for 10 fucking people, Jeff.
0: Well, and here's where it gets even more outrageous. What? So my mom, my sainted, blessed mom gets on the phone with these people, and explains the situation to him. Now, on a corporate level, here's what I could understand. Oh, Mrs. Bowdren, there's been a, an incredibly horrible mistake that's happened. Uh, we regret this error, and we are going to make you now, uh, of course, with your uh, the untimely demise of your husband, we're going to make you the primary person on this card, and we're going to restore all the points to this account that were taken out, because we want to maintain you as a customer in good standing. And by the way, not just good standing. They're like, you know what, what do you call it? a gold member or platinum member? I don't know what whatever the, the code is uh, as far as that, you know, because we want to maintain you as a gold or platinum member. We're going to restore all those points. Hey, you know what? Just for the heck of it, because we've caused you so much, uh, grievous, yep. uh, you know, we're going to throw a couple thousand and I don't know how many, you know. That would be, I think, would be the ideal business decision to do. And, and, you know, in a worst-case scenario, I think, okay, we're going to restore the points. And we're not going to give you any more because we're kind of being corporate weasels, but we're going to restore what you had originally. That, I think, would be the absolute least they can do. But instead, Barry, here's where it gets good. Yeah, you know what they told my mom? They said, oh, well. Well, what you need to do is if you want to maintain your uh, Hilton Honors, you have to reapply to be a Hilton Honors member. And those points, yeah, you're not getting those back anymore, Bear.
1: Now, this was
0: another rep or the same one? I, I Honestly, I'm not sure. But just
1: uh, the corporate weaselness of the people from Hiltonbury, Wow. Yeah, it, it's out there, too. And you're right about the additional points, too. So open table has a policy. And and one of the policies is when you make a reservation, you do receive points. And if you accrue enough points, you can get discounts at eating out, hotels, Amazon, et cetera. With that, if somebody makes a reservation for a restaurant and the restaurant, for whatever reason, is closed that night, maybe an emergency came up, it's something called a dining disaster. And when the diner will call Open Table and say, hey, what is this bullshit? I made a reservation for seven o'clock. I show up and the restaurant is closed. We apologize profusely. We try to get to the bottom of what actually occurred. And with that, we'll go ahead and, and award them a thousand points right off the top. Just as a way to say, we're sorry. And it, again, no harm, no foul to us, right? Doesn't do anything. Hilton needs to do this with your mom. And if there were 10,000 points in your mom's account, there need to be 11,000 points in your mom's account. This is an easy fix for Hilton. Again, I believe that uh, if your mom and possibly your sister or even yourself, Jeff, if you speak to someone who is in management, I, you don't want the flunky on the phone because they will give you the runaround and you'll go in circles. You need to speak to somebody who's a manager and a higher up, and this needs to be handled immediately. Please get your manager on the phone. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. Then this should be rectified. If not, I'm not staying in any more Hilton properties because I'm I'm outraged by this.
0: Uh, and you know. One of the things that, uh, we discussed, uh, within the last few months was a, an experience my wife and I had when we went to a, I'm just going to compare this to it. We went to a Longhorn, and, uh, our experience, uh, I can't even remember what it was. Like the waitress was, uh, not attentive or the, there was something wrong with the steak or something like that. And walking out, we mentioned it, we were literally walking out the door and the manager was standing there. He goes, Oh, how was your, uh, your dining experience or something like that. And I said, well, now that you mentioned it, let me tell you what the problem was. And I told him, and the guy says, can you wait here uh, for two seconds? I said, okay. Comes back and he hands me uh, $30 worth of gift cards to come back. And I and I told you the story on the air. And I said, you know what? That's a guy that wants to have a repeat business. Okay. He could have said, ah, I'm sorry to hear that. Maybe we'll see you next time. And you know, guess what? We wouldn't have come back, but he didn't do that. He gave us those gift cards, which by the way, he could have given us 10 bucks worth, okay? It's something to show a little bit of, hey, we might have made a mistake. We really hope you'll come back and give us another chance. And that's all as a customer that really you should ask. You know, if someone has screwed up, it it happens. You know, there there are mistakes. People are are human beings, they're they're capable uh, of making mistakes. And in this case, there was a mistake made. And by God, that mistake should have
1: been rectified instead of being compounded, which is what they did. And you're right about that. And the way that was handled is is correct, too. So one of the theories when it comes to restaurants, and I'll give you two different examples. And what he did was right because he gave you money to come back to the restaurant. So instead of refunding whatever you had paid that night, because you might have walked out the door and said, you know what? bad experience, I'm not going to go back. And most people, I forget what the stat was, but it was something like, if you have a bad experience at a restaurant, you won't go back for a year to two years. And then you may go back and try it. But by giving you gift cards, you're going to come back in and you're also going to spend more than the amount of what the gift cards are, which is going to also help him. But when I worked for Universal Studios, one of the big differences between, let's say, like a Longhorn steakhouse versus working for a big corporation like that was it was a destination is that people the average person comes to universal once every seven years so the idea would be how much money can we get from this group of people it's a family over the the three four or five days that they're here how can we get them to spend all of their money at all of our property instead of going off property to you know another restaurant or even disney world How can you spend all of your money on universal unlike the freestanding restaurant where it's not about a one shot. It's about building a guest. That's going to come back once a week, once every two weeks, once a month over the next five years. And if you have a bad experience, it's about rectifying that bad experience. So you will come back and generally, and Jeff, I think this also would apply to you and your family in a lot of ways. If you've had a bad experience at a restaurant And they go above and beyond, which means showing you that I give a shit, that I take care of your problem, and at the same time inviting you to come back and I'm giving you additional money, you are more likely to go back to that restaurant and have a good experience because you've just—the old saying, Jeff, it's not about the fuck-up, it's all about the recovery. And it's how somebody recovers from. So I'm happy to hear, and I know that you've given these restaurants additional chances and things like that. Look, I've done it too. I could have a bad experience, but if it's handled correctly, and I don't ask for much, I don't want you to, you know, I'm not asking you to even give me anything for free, but recognize the mistake, recognize the error, and recognize the fact that, you know, we're all in the same boat these days. Money can be an issue for all of us. And if we choose to come to your establishment and we choose to come and and we want to drop 20. You know, I went out to dinner the other night, Jeff, and it was one hundred and forty dollars for three people. No alcohol. Uh, It was sushi, which is absolutely. Well, I can tell Flaherty wasn't with you. Yeah, right. Exactly. But with that, Jeff, one hundred and forty bucks for sushi. It was an amazing experience as well. You know,
0: know, quite frankly, one of the things that uh, Barry and I have talked about different positive and negative experiences we've had, uh, you know, whether it be in the restaurant industry or not. It's that it's all about management taking care of the problems. You yep. know, Barry, Barry has mentioned before that with different restaurants, you know, if, especially if it's a, like a, a chain that's owned by corporations, you know, that, you know, individual restaurants uh, that have bad managers can be a negative experience where you go three miles down the road, it's the same, you know, chain, but a different manager at the new location. And you have a great experience at that location. Yep. You know, and that's what it's it's all about management and whether it be on a corporate level or on a local level, taking care of the problem and dealing with it. So Hilton and Hilton Honors, Barry, myself, and the entirety of the brothership are calling you out, calling on you to make right by this because what you did was a dirty deal to my mom and I don't appreciate it. So. On that, let's let's get on to something new here. Uh, Barry, as you know, we've talked about movies before uh here on the uh Peabody Insurance. Yeah, I know it's 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 a shocker. We've occasionally talked about movies here. So, Barry, I wanted to tell you about a kind of an unusual experience I had and an unusual story that came about from a movie that I watched recently. I think I, I caught it on TCM. And it was like one of these movies. Yeah, I've said it before, like I'll DVR a movie. And I kind of forget about it. And then I'm looking on all the stuff that I've uh, DVR'd. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like a month ago I I DVR'd this movie. Let me see what it's about. Who's in it? Do I want to watch it? And I'll usually go to IMDb. Oh, what kind of grade do they give it? Is this worth my time? So I watched this movie, Barry, with the very unusual title of Cruel Gun Story. Okay. Cruel Gun Story is a movie from Japan. It was made in, oh, let me see. I think it was 1964. So apparently, uh, in 1964, in like the early part of the 60s, maybe the late 50s, uh, Japanese film had become incredibly enamored with film noir in this country. Okay, uh, uh, whether it's a you know story about uh, you know the mob, or stories about you know uh, people that are committing crimes, they really got into their culture and they really began enjoying those movies. So there was a whole culture in the Japanese cinema that developed over about a 10 or 15 year period. That was, uh, uh, let's just say, about crime, about the Yakuza. If the Yakuza you know, exists, we're not sure, Barry. It, it may be just something made up, <clears throat> just like the mafia. <coughs> you know. So anyway, cruel gun story. Uh, here's the IMDb, uh, what do you call, narrative about what is it? A convict fresh out of prison with a handicapped sister is coerced by a wealthy mob boss into organizing an armed racetrack car heist. Okay? So I started watching it, and I enjoyed the movie, Uh, quite frankly. A little bit of a downer of an ending, because literally, uh, no, I don't want to say that, because just in case somebody decides to watch movie, I I won't give a spoiler what happens at the end of the movie. But what I found really interesting about this, it's a good movie. It gets a 7.1 on the IMDb scale. It's a good good heist flick, if you know what I mean. So I was doing some uh, research on the movie. The gentleman that is the lead star in the movie is a guy whose name is... Joe Shishido. Okay, so I started looking, and as I was watching the film, I noticed he had a particular physical characteristic that seemed a tad unusual. And I started looking at, and I'm trying to figure out what is it about him, like that I would compare it to. So, Barry, have you ever seen a picture of someone who's had their, you know, jaw like dislocated or fractured? Oh, absolutely. Okay, yes. so like they're not that their face is misshapen but it gives a, a very distinctive appearance. Okay. So I'm looking up on this Joe Shishido, and Joe Shishido had a career where he was primarily a, uh, a supporting uh, character actor. Okay. Uh, was getting work, but was never breaking into where he was a star of a film. So Joe Shishido, he is one that's going to grab destiny by the, you know, by the hand and, you know, pull it towards him. Cause Joe Shishido, by God, he's going to be a movie star in Japan. Right. So Joe Shishito goes to the doctor. He has implants. I'd never heard of this, Barry, put into his cheeks. (laughs) I mean, I read that. I was like, what? What? The guy has implants put into his cheeks. And so it looks like he's a guy that got punched in the face and has a swollen side of his face or a swollen jaw or has a dislocated jaw. And then apparently what happened was the guy was incredibly successful. I mean, like he made like 40 films over the course of about like five years. This guy literally must have been working every friggin' day of his life for a, a period of like five years uh, in making movies. And he was very successful. But what happens is Joe Shishido ends up getting, oh, here's a, here's a shocker. He gets typecast as a guy who does crime films, okay? So then later in his life, he has surgery to remove the implants because he's tired of being typecast as a guy who's only in crime movies. He gets the implants removed, then has another 10-year run as a character actor, which is what he was before he had the surgery. Is that the greatest story you've ever heard, Barry?
1: I never heard about this before, and it was just crazy to me. Yeah, that is pretty crazy, too. And What was the movie that initially that you you saw that brought Cruel this? Gun Story which I've never even heard of. Where no, did you, I, and, where'd and, you, you know, find this? Uh, it was on, I believe it was on
0: TCM and okay. it was just like, of well, you know, like every, every once in a blue moon, they'll do like a weekend. They'll do like uh foreign movies or something like that. And I, you know, I love like Kurosawa films and stuff like that uh, from Japan. And uh, they have movies from Hong Kong and from China and different, you know, from Europe and stuff like that. But I saw this and you know, I'd be, Oh, it's a heist film. Let me, let me see if, you know, if they do a good crime story. And because I've talked before, I believe on this show uh, about a movie that is uh, is called, I want to say high and low. That's like about a kidnapping of an executive's uh, son and uh, is a really good movie. And it was made about the same time. It's like, Oh, let's check this out. And I watched it. The movie is, I would say it's very good. I, you know, it's not like, Oh my God, uh, I'm going to watch every one of this guy's movies. It's life altering. No, it's not that it's a very good film. And there are certainly worse ways that you could spend two hours on a rainy afternoon uh hey, I feel like watching a, a heist film. Let, let's see what this is like. And you know, of course you got to be one of those people that can get past the captions and stuff. But there's a, you know, a lot of uh there's a lot of gunplay. Let's I'll just put it that way. A lot of action and stuff like that. But that this guy went to those lengths to get his career to the point where he wanted it to be and he's like one of these guys, he kind of got a uh, uh I believe the ones they compared him to was Sort of a, uh, a Robert Mitchum, Humphrey Bogart, you know, Kirk Douglas back in the, that time frame. He's always got sunglasses on. He kind of comes across like a little bit of a bad boy, you know. But uh, so if you're looking for something different, Cruel Gun Story starring Joe Shishido and his cheek implants coming soon to a theater near you, Barry. So, Barry, our match of the week. Oh, Barry, it has been a hot tick since we've been back to Memphis. We are going to December 26, 1983. It's the day after Christmas at the Mid-South Coliseum. And, wow, Barry, you know, in all the years we've been doing this, I don't know, have we done a Terry
1: Taylor match before? I think we did one. I, okay. I want to say there was a match, because I remember we had a discussion about Terry Taylor. I think it came okay. out. We are talking Terry Taylor, a... a
0: Wet behind the ears, squeaky clean, babyface Terry Taylor taking on the Macho Man, Randy Savage. It is for the Mid-America title, which is, I, I got to be honest with you, it's kind of a weird name for a belt, you know? It's not, yeah, they, I know they had the Southern title there. I mean, maybe they had an international title, but the Mid-America title just seems like, you, I don't know, it just seems a tad regional to me. So, Barry, what did you think about this uh, this match? You had a chance to look at it, tell the folks what you thought.
1: Yeah, and to touch on that about the title as well, Please it, don't uh, touch yourself, Barry. I well, not yet. Patreon episode only Okay, thank you. Yeah, that that's actually coming up. Speedy Discharge. That was for you, Jaworski. <laughs> I want to say the Mid-America title was one that came from the Goulis territory. The Goulis, Jarrett uh worked together for years. They, you know, they separated the state. Nashville was Gulis, Memphis was Jarrett, Jarrett then took over. There, you know, they had a breakup, and I think at some point they got back together. But I want to say that the Mid-America title was essentially a ghoulish title at one point. But it is—it's a—it's a strange title, and there's sometimes that you know for promotions, Florida was guilty of this. I think uh, I think all wrestling promotions are guilty of this to some degree. There sometimes are way too many titles. You don't need to make everybody a champion. Not everybody actually needs it. Do, this, do you know what they did
0: not have? Not even in in Goulis, uh Goulis's territory, Barry. They didn't have
1: <clears throat> an interim champion. He I don't it. understand any of that. I uh, don't. You know. What the hell? I, well, what do you? And doing? I'm an I'm an AEW defender, and I even I'm even i going. What the fuck does that mean? Because he, he's going to be back in like less than a week, right?
0: Yeah.
1: So yeah, so I don't understand for anything why you would have an interim champion unless it's going to lead to a great heel turn. And they decided to write that in, but logically on paper, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I would fully agree with that. So The only
0: way that I could see, and I'm getting off on a tangent here, the only way that I could see them doing that is if they had the match go to a draw, and then Dustin comes back, and they make it a three-way dance for the title. And then Cody turns on Dustin. Yes. Now, that would have been good stuff.
1: Yeah, and maybe that's maybe this is what the plan is with this. I did not watch Battle of the Belts. Did I miss anything, Jeff? Now that uh, we're
0: um trying to think uh whoa, uh, let me think
1: uh, Rio Britt Baker, anything?
0: Uh yeah, I watched it uh uh they did they teased a turn there by uh Jamie Hayter? Yes. But yeah. at the end they kind of all hugged it out. Uh whoa, God, what the hell was the big match? It was it oh it was Sammy and uh and Dustin. Sammy Dustin and uh, yeah. Uh, and then um, I'm trying to think Matt was, Seidel wasn't it Matt Seidel wrestled Ricky Starks. Yes. And they, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, to me, it was like, it was a good episode, uh, maybe a, a good to really good episode of rampage. I don't think it was as good as some of the dynamite episodes, but
1: anyway, we're getting off. Let's talk. Randy Savage Terry Taylor. Gotcha. So, uh, so this actually, this match is a Memphis mid South match but it aired on ICW television. And I guess this was the period because ICW was still in operation, but Macho Man, Lanny Poffo, Angelo Poffo were all working for Memphis and working in Memphis. But I think the idea was it was some sort of invasion. So the television was still going on. Pretty sure ICW was on its last legs by this point. Liz, the future Miss Liz Poffo, was the host of this and who was the guy somebody had written that that was one of the batten brothers that was uh, with her that may well have been you know now that i didn't recognize him but that's uh that's a pretty good choice didn't look like him at all a bleach blonde hair or a wig but uh and i gotta say liz so look we have talked about liz and liz is somebody that i think a lot of people hold near and dear to their hearts i remember it was our first or second episode and i said I never understood the appeal of Liz. Beautiful woman, but not not stunningly beautiful that, you know, you you're, you can't believe what you're seeing at the same time as a manager, didn't really offer a whole lot, in my opinion. And some people got very offended by that. It did seem that the people that were offended by that were the, those that had seen her as a child when they were children. And these were good memories. And, you know, don't, don't talk about Liz. But, you know, as an adult watching Liz as a manager, I don't think she ever offered a whole lot. In watching her do this commentary, it's spectacular how unspectacular she is, (laughs) right? (laughs) When you say like spectacular, she really is naturally unspectacular, Jeff. There is nothing as you're watching this. This looks like a woman who just—I don't know—just came out of the mobile home. Rest in peace. I realize this is terrible, but it looks like a woman who's just come out of her mobile home and attempting to do some sort of television commentary for the first time. It just doesn't really click. There's no no air of professionalism as you're watching her intro this You're going to get the
0: hate mail this week, Rose.
1: I am going to get so much fucking hate mail from uh, George Steele fans and Liz fans. <laughs> They're going to be all over me on this one. But look, it, it's here. You, you like a duck on a stuff. June bug. You can see it for yourself. I'm not making this up. The other fun thing about this is that Macho Man comes out to entrance music. So this is what I like about Memphis, because Memphis always did this to me. A lot of cities and territories, would, they would really try to to put forth entrance music that would match the personality of the wrestler coming out. And whether you were doing something, and maybe it's a badass song which really I think in wrestling most songs should be kind of badass but Memphis would do weird stuff with their songs right so when you have macho man come out do you have him come out to pomp and circumstance no you don't it clearly that's what he was known for in later years do you have him come out to uh macho man by uh the village people you don't which is probably a good idea but to have him come out to Irene Cara singing Fame just seems completely mil mistimed. I just don't understand, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's the you, weirdest that you thing
0: that the, the first song that I ever uh, associated with Randy Savage was they were doing the, uh, the old Georgia tag team tournament that they would have every Thanksgiving and Randy Savage was coming in. I want to say this is like 82, uh, or maybe he was 83. And so they were doing a video. Oh, you know, this guy's going to be in the tag team tournament and he's going to be teaming up with, I don't remember who he teamed up with, but it's Randy Savage, and they did the song, I want to say it was State of Shock by the Stones. Oh. Have you ever seen that, them doing that the video with Randy Savage? I don't recall that now. Yeah, okay. Does that, that's just like it what you said. Sounds pretty good, though. Yeah. When you said that, I was like, uh, that's where I thought you were going to go. And I was going to say, well, I was like the first time I ever really remember seeing Randy Savage, but please continue
1: Memphis, but Memphis always Memphis would do like a, like their fabulous ones videos, which was very Steve Kern, great guy, good friend. I uh, could kick my ass just by looking at me, but there was a homoerotic tone when they would do the fabulous ones videos. Also, you know, they would, they would like wear speedos and touch their butts together. Like, <laughs> that Just like, you know, you would sit here and go, really? Like, what? what who's who's
0: directing this? What's the logic here? Wait, wait, uh, wait, isn't this the point where I'm supposed to go, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not th- <laughs> exactly. It's perfectly acceptable.
1: Perfectly acceptable, but just, you know, a little confusing at that time. But uh, the fame, Irene Kara, never became a big star like she was supposed to. And uh, maybe this is one of the reasons why Angelo Paffo at ringside doing a, a fine job as the manager. Angelo, a guy that I think had been around since the 40s. And uh, we had seen him in Florida in the 70s. This is the 80s. I think his active career is pretty much over at this point. But still knows how to work a crowd. And really, the key, and I, I got to tell you, I think this match is a good match. But there's no hook here. There's nothing that is absolutely spectacular. You're going, I've got to watch this. But you have two guys who know how to work and you've got two guys that understand psychology and Macho Man really, even at this stage, able to work the crowd. You know, he does his finger pointing, picking fans out of the audience to to engage in verbal discourse. What I did like about this match, there's some chain wrestling here and there's good chain wrestling. You got two wrestlers. That That's the key right here. You don't have two guys that are that know four or five moves. You have two guys that can do wrestling. So there's some good chain wrestling with this interesting spot. They're on the concrete and Macho Man is looking to pile drive Taylor on the concrete. Jerry Calhoun does some leg lock where he blocks Taylor's leg so Taylor can't go up in the air, completely blocking the pile driver, which is interesting to me because I must have seen growing up in Florida A lot of guys get pile-driven on the concrete. No referee ever got involved, ever tried to stop that. So I thought that was uh, interesting. I did think when the finish came that it was kind of rushed. It was like they announced the time, and all of a sudden, bam! Like, they go right for the finish. And the finish is, in some ways, unspectacular. I I don't want to say it's a bad finish, because it's really not. But at the same time... I think that maybe they thought they were going to go a little bit longer with this match. I have some questions, Jeff. I have two questions for you. And then a statement. Apparently, this uh, match uh, took a, place. A statement? The sta- oh, yeah. I'm going to make a statement. statement. Do you want to go on the record with the statement, mister? I'm going on the record. Sweet Lou, we, let's make sure we're getting this right now. We're going to go on. This match, Jeff, occurred the same night that Bob Backlund beat the Iron Sheik for the WWWF title in Madison you, Square Garden. You get that
0: backwards, by the way. Oh, did I? Sorry. Iron Sheik. Uh,
1: the night that Iron Sheik. Somebody. It was uh, you know what it was? It was quintessinal, Jeff. It was <laughs> only you and Lou understand that at the moment. It was a quintessinal spot, but yes, the night that Iron Sheik won the title in Madison Square Garden, also taking place on a Monday night, much like the Memphis uh shows did. So I know we've talked about this previously. I, I thought we should just touch upon this. Terry Taylor a career that never went as far as it potentially should have gone i believe because he's a douchebag or was a douchebag and uh, i say that there are a lot of stories out there taylor so physically the guy had the looks he had everything going for him was in good shape had a good look a very handsome guy could work in the ring could even cut a promo wasn't going to cut a, a, a crazy promo but could cut a promo But there are legendary stories about him being a douchebag, a dick and rubbing people the wrong way. I have to tell you, I have one of those stories as well. I was in Georgia in 1980 and Taylor had spent a few months in 79 in Florida. And then in 80, he had moved up to Georgia. And uh, I think there was a match, Terry Funk versus Terry Taylor on TBS. He was a rookie still or green. He wasn't getting much of a push. We were there for the uh, WFIA convention. This was where uh, the turn with Dusty Rhodes in the cage with Ole and the, the Andersons and Ivan Koloff, the Assassins, all that took place. And Taylor was out in front of the dressing rooms. And I don't think it was Atlanta. It was probably one of the spot shows. And a group of fans, some from the WFIA and some who were local to Georgia and probably not smart to the inner workings of wrestling, went up to Terry Taylor and said, Mr. Taylor, can we get your autograph? Very politely. And he looked at the fans and he laughed and he said, I'm not signing autographs tonight. Don't you know who I am? And again, this was not a big star. This was just a guy being a dickhead. And uh, that was the only it was the only time I was ever near Terry Taylor. But I saw it. But it does make me wonder, because Taylor in the Federation, I don't think was going to go too far, you know, let alone the whole Red Rooster thing, which was a career killer. But Terry Taylor, outside of Bill Watts in Memphis, probably didn't do a whole lot. And I think, to me, Taylor made for the NWA, could have had good matches, There, because wrestling was taking place. You know, there were guys who were of a similar look to Terry Taylor, similar build, could have had some really good matches, could have done extremely well. I do think politics held him down, and I I do want to hear your thoughts on that. The other aspect of that is Macho Man to the NWA. I know that we discussed that when we did uh, review the Macho Man match maybe six months ago. I forget what the time frame was, but Macho Man was tailor-made for the NWA. If you just think of how good of his matches were with Steamboat, but if he had been able to wrestle Ric Flair, if he had been able to wrestle guys, you know, Brad Armstrong, I mean, you know, we, we you and I both talk about Brad a lot and how great he was, but Similar style of wrestling in some ways, similar build. I I think if Macho Man had been brought in for anything else, with the exception of being a uh, being the guy who's taking the elbow from Dusty at that stage, even Magnum T.A., whatever it was, I think Macho Man could have made a great impression. Everybody does like to talk about the politics that occurred in the WWF, but I think the N.W.A., is equally as guilty when you stop and think about it. And Dusty Rhodes is really the person that I'm pointing out. And it's a shame because you could have done Steamboat. They let Steamboat go to the Federation because he wasn't one of Dusty's boys, which, I mean, you know, my God, how do you justify that? So what I do want to hear after you review this movie, or even before, Jeff, your thoughts on the match, your thoughts on Macho Man to the N.W.A. and Terry Taylor Should he have been more in his career or did he reach where he was supposed to be?
0: Uh, I think Terry Taylor was a guy whose total was never the sum of his parts. Uh, There was a lot more there that uh, Terry Taylor could have become. And I think uh, in order for that to happen, he would have had to been a heel much earlier because let's be honest, if, if you're kind of a douche, you're going to have a hard time projecting uh you know a baby face to the general public. Now, let, let's be honest. There are guys out there that have made a career uh as a baby face that were complete douchebags, but they have a way of being able to mask their douchebaggery. I don't know that Terry Taylor because he was such a natural heel of his own right. I don't know that he did a good enough job and you gave a fine example there of someone just being a douchebag for the sake of being a douchebag, which I think we've now set the all-time record on this show for the most times using the word douchebag. So (laughs) I think if he had been made a heel, uh, maybe earlier in his career, maybe in mid South before he came back, uh, you know, of course he made the turn with Eddie Gilbert and stuff. And that was like, uh, I want to say 87 ish, 88 ish. But I think if he had, if that had happened, you know, like say 85, if Bill Watts had made the decision to turn him, but Let's remember at the time that Bill Watts was trying to find somebody to replace Magnum in the same way that he was trying to find people to replace JYD, and Terry Taylor was the guy that he wanted to replace uh, Magnum, and uh, he succeeded to a certain degree, but not, uh, you know, he didn't become the level of a star that Magnum was in in Mid-South, much less what he was in, uh, you know, in Crockett. You know, Randy Savage, if he had gone to Crockett, you know, maybe 83-ish, something like that, Would he have been a success? I think he would have been, but I think with Randy Savage, there was such a built-in paranoia in in his career that was, just became a a central part of his character. You know, uh, all the stories, you know, you uh, having put the boots to poor Liz Hewlett and, uh, you know, declared her to be really not that big a deal. I'm just waiting for the blowback from the listeners on that one, Barry. But, um, (laughs) you know, that's the only thing I can think. Would he have been a success in the ring? Yes. Would have eventually he have derailed and first of all, he would have derailed himself because he was not the politician that somebody like, you know, oh, Dusty Rhodes. If Dusty Rhodes is in power, okay, there's a reason why Terry Taylor never became anything, was because Dusty harbored some sort of grievance against him. And we've talked about what happened on this show. So if Randy Savage comes in, If Randy Savage doesn't immediately start towing the company line that Dusty Rhodes is the greatest athlete that's ever lived, and now he's the greatest wrestler, and he's he should probably be getting the strap, you know, if he doesn't do that whole thing, the way that Dusty, to a certain extent, expected people to do, is Dusty going to want to push him? No. No matter how much you know, Dusty was a prime example of a guy that could be a great booker, or he could be a horrible booker because he would literally cut his nose to spite his face. And he did that more than once. So now getting back to this match, I enjoyed the match because let's talk about the three main components of this match. Number one, Randy Savage was absolutely on fire. And, you know, to your point, you could see this guy is going to be a star if he wasn't one already. I mean, he was a star on the very small level in ICW. He gets to Memphis, which is a slightly bigger level. He was a star and was going to be a star there for a couple of years. And to his credit, when Vince brought the guy in, he made the right call and he turned him into what he became, you know, this iconic figure. And the, the fact that this guy was able to get over to the extent he did uh, when you had Hulk Hogan still at the height of his appeal is a testament not only to Vince McMahon's promotional abilities, but it's a, a testament to Randy Savage's abilities, too, that he was able to get himself over like that. He was just so, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, like schizophrenic. In this match with Taylor, you know, like where he goes outside the ring and he's getting into it with a fan and then he jumps back into the ring and he's like he he literally is. Uh, and I had no idea whether this was part of it or not, but he just came off like a guy that was so amped up on coke <laughs> that he didn't yeah. know what to do with himself, you know, and I say that because I don't know if that was the uh, case. So I'm saying it as a positive because he came across just so out of control uh, in a positive manner, that he was spellbinding. Number two, I'm not going to mention Terry Taylor. Angelo Poffo at ringside, you know, really adds a a presence of menace to the managerial role that we didn't always see. You know, you're more used to seeing the manager that gets his ass kicked or takes the bump, where Angelo comes off as a guy that if he hits the opponent that gets thrown out of the ring, he's going to do some damage to the guy. You know, and he's not one of these former wrestlers who's out there just collecting a paycheck and doesn't really do much. Angelo's. And of course it's his son that he's watching. He's very actively engaged. And I really thought he came off very well on this. what do you think of Angelo? Oh, I thought he came off fantastic.
1: This, Yeah, week. absolutely.
0: It was good stuff. Uh, Barry's right. Was this a, you know, a top 100 match? No, but, uh, well, the match is almost 40 years old. There's a title change. Let's just say that. Okay. And, uh, so there's that, that's significant about the match. Uh, is this the greatest match in the history of Memphis? No, but it's always fun to go visit Memphis to watch them. Uh, I will disagree with Barry. I don't think that Liz, uh, was the best looking woman that ever lived. Not by a long shot. Was she a very attractive woman? Yes. On the scale of women in the wrestling business. I think she's got a very strong case for being one of the better looking women in the history of wrestling. Uh, you know, maybe that's a low bar. Maybe that's a high bar. I don't know. It depends on your point of view. But uh, I don't think that, you know, a- as a broadcaster, I'll agree with Barry. She, she's, she's not the greatest broadcaster I've ever lived. But if you remember, she hardly spoke in the WWF, you know, that was part of the character was that she was this silent woman, almost a tad on the mousy side. Uh, that was her character. But here you get to hear her talk, uh, you know, as an announcer, and you can see, quite frankly, why they didn't make her an announcer.
1: So, but if no, the. You- Jeff, did you find her it, – it almost seemed – so what I got, she's wearing either a jacket or a cape or some sort of schmata over her shoulders. That's
0: the first time we've ever used the word schmata. It is. Why don't you, for, for the unintelligent uh, among us, explain to us what a schmata
1: is, Barry. So <laughs> – so, and maybe Lou can correct me if I'm, if I'm incorrect, I believe. So it's a Yiddish word. Oh, so you're going to Lou for the Yiddish translation. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Lou is my go. I Jeff, it'll be Saturday night at like midnight. And I'm like calling Lou, Lou, I need a Yiddish translation for this word. <laughs> He's my go-to guy 24 hours a day. But she, a is like a big covering nothing that would uh, accent her figure in any form. It's just like a, it's like a big tent over her body, but she appears to be wearing some sort of schmata. She's not made up. There's no, she just looks like an average woman with this and not overly attractive. There were times she, I thought in WCW, which was really some of her last work. I thought that was the prettiest she had ever looked, but I just didn't think here. She looked like anything. And certainly there's no charisma or anything indicating that she should have been broadcasting. I will say, uh, as
0: far as I'm concerned, the dressed up in the evening gowns, Liz was not as, I don't know, as hot. The word I liked her better in WCW when she kind of a little dirtied up, you know? Yeah. And, And I say that in the best possible way. Like her hair wasn't perfect. Sometimes, you know, uh, and I, I hate to say it was when she was with Luger because, wow, that's a really bad way of putting it right before she died. But uh, I, I just I was the evening gown presentation, the perfect woman, uh, the perfect representation. And uh, I guess in Vince McMahon's eyes uh, of what a uh, a woman in a wrestling uh, arena should look like uh, was not as good to me as when she was with the NWO and, and you know, and coming to the ring with those guys. I thought she, you know, from a physical standpoint, looked better then.
1: Yeah, I would say so, too. Again, Liz, to me, I just never, you know, I don't know. I I think especially at that stage, I was much more of a Missy Hyatt person, though Missy's not really into us. I was into <laughs> Missy. Uh, <laughs> nicest way to say that. Maybe she thinks uh, we're geeks. Yet. So do you want to discuss that briefly, Jeff, since uh, uh, you've know. opened that door? Do you <laughs> want to discuss it?
0: <laughs> Missy has this habit when she reviews matches on Twitter is uh, if uh, it's a uh, I mean, oh, the road warriors are taking on a couple of geeks, which I find incredibly offensive as someone who was in the industry that Missy would call to uh carpenters, to job guys, whatever uh, he, she calls them geeks. Maybe it's some term of endearment uh in her mind, but I just think that's kind of disrespectful, Barry. What do you think?
1: Yeah, so I think it's really disrespectful, and, and I, I think uh, I because you're never going to hear. Let Why don't we say, we'll take Jerry Briscoe, right? Living legend, guy that was around for over 50 years in the business. He's not going to call guys that, that stepped into a ring geeks. It, it is disrespectful. But it's disrespectful if you also consider Missy's alleged history in her past, because there's a lot that's there. And uh, to refer to people in the wrestling business who truly contributed in some form to have them referred to as geeks really is bizarre it just doesn't make sense to me you sent that to me and uh i was shocked but hey sweet lou checking in jeff you saw this google defining a shmata as a ragged or shabby garment i'll go with that
0: i've already uh, i've already got it out uh, as uh, this is the shmata episode so
1: <laughs> there you go
0: brian's going to love that cuz he'll know what it means <laughs> Barry, I know one thing that you love more than anything is a top ten. Uh, no, no, we're not going to do that this time. What we are going to do is something, Barry, that I know you love. It's time for Florida Man or Not. Oh. oh, we haven't done this one in a while. And sources tell me, Barry, that a certain hmm moderator of our own group may have sent you a Florida Man or Not story for my benefit. Is that true? That was true, yes. Son of a bitch, Mark Hurtwick. um, (laughs) There you go. But anyway, so I have a couple – how many do you have?
1: uh, I don't have any. I I think the one that that Mark actually – if I'm correct, the one that Mark actually offered wound up being posted in the group, which is what he was commenting. Which is
0: why we don't want people to do that. If you have a good story, please send it to either Barry or myself so that we can include it in the show while giving you credit. But instead, no – Selfish person has to post it in the group, and then I go, yeah, yeah see, there you go all right well so it, hey, in
1: mark's defense, I don't think he was the no, one No, no, who posted I, it. I, agree. Yeah, I yeah. agree yeah so anyway,
0: so I will say, Barry, I have two that I will throw at you and okay. l- allow me to give credit to uh the obtuse angles podcast, which I listen to occasionally, and uh a couple good ones here for your benefit and the benefit, of the listener, are you ready, Barry? I am already. Let's go ahead and do this. A woman is suing Geico for $1 million after claiming she had sex and contracted an STD from a man in a car that was covered by the insurance provider. <clears throat> According to the Daily Mail, always a reputable source, the Daily Mail, by the way. Our friend John Lee, avid reader of the Daily Absolutely. Mail. Absolutely. The woman who is identified as, quote, M period, O period, in court papers. Claims that she and her then partner, identified as M. Period B. Period, had unprotected sex in a 2014 Hyundai Genesis. Uh, you ever uh, had the experience of riding in a Hyundai Genesis, Bear?
1: Yes, but I've never had sex in one. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, this was
0: in late 19, uh, 2017. In 2018, M. Period O. Period was diagnosed oh, with the human papilloma virus. Or HPV, I hope I pronounced that right, otherwise people are giving me shit. Uh HPV, which she claims she contacted during the car rendezvous. The woman has now submitted coverage claim to Geico for one million dollars <laughs> because the vehicle, which is under M period B period's name, is insured by the company Barry, Florida man
1: or not. So just so I'm so M period B period. That's the guy. A- gave an STD to M period O period in a car. And because the car is insured by Geico, she's now suing Geico for a million dollars. Correct, sir. So this is what I'm curious about above everything else. Is there a lawyer out there giving her this advice to sue the insurance
0: I to company? i guess that she, <laughs> she had legal representation. Whether wow. or not it would be good legal representation, a complete uh, you know choice of yours uh, as far as whether you think that. But- Barry, again, Florida man or not, what do you think? This certainly could be Florida. I would have to say yes, this could be Florida. The show me state of Missouri, Barry. So that is o for 1 on your count. Oh, That's a great freaking story, though. I mean, come on.
1: How so. is that? What? Yeah, I mean, my God. Of all the ridiculous lawsuits we've heard of in our lifetime, that one has to rank right up there near the very, very, very top. True. You are
0: very accurate. So uh, let's see. Uh, okay, let me just figure out how to word this, Barry. The title: DoorDash Driver. This this is right up Barry Rose's alley, by the way. Oh okay. uh, boy, is Joe Christie gonna love this one because it involves <laughs> uh, fecal matter. DoorDash driver delivers food to radio DJ and then proceeds to poop in her trash can. Mm. A story after your own heart. A DoorDash driver delivered some food to her apartment building and proceeded to poop in her trash can. Lisa Stanley, a radio DJ, recently ordered some food to have her delivered to her apartment building via DoorDash. Security camera footage from the apartment building shows that after the DoorDash driver, driver, it's easy for me to say, dropped off Stanley's food, she proceeded, it was a woman, by the way, which makes it even better, proceeded to head to a trash can in the building's lobby and defecate into the trash can. (laughs) The DJ told the news what I saw I could not unsee I was flabbergasted at what I saw she let it go much like you on that lawn that one evening Barry yes you know what they say quote when you gotta go you gotta go and boy did she ever there's actually apparently video footage of this Barry which I'm sure the group will want to see oh yeah Uh, Doordash told uh, the uh, the DJ the actions of their driver quote were unacceptable. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Doordash really stepping out on a limb there, Bear. And the driver will no longer be able to deliver for Doordash. <laughs> Shocking! <laughs> the company really putting the screws to the driver. Here. Yes. The company also said they will cooperate with the police if they get involved, but no charges have been filed yet.
1: Barry Rose, Florida man or in this case Florida woman or not. Uh, And I think, well, the first one too, the first one was Florida man and Florida woman, but it wasn't, it was Missouri woman. It was the show me state, as you said. So I got to, you know, again, this, this story reeks of Florida in more ways than one. Absolutely. And the fact that the first story was not Florida, I am going to say this, this story, is definitely Florida, Jeff,
0: your favorite city in the country. No, not Clearwater. No, not Philly. It's Los Angeles California. <laughs> okay, <laughs> where the, you can find a good in and out burger bear. There is video footage of this. There is video, we will post a link right. to this video so that Joe Christie, because Joe Christie, if nothing else, Barry, I think we can safely say he's a he's a fan of uh of not only uh shit, <laughs> uh, he's a fan. He uh, from what I have heard, allegedly. Likes to lie under the glass coffee table, much like a wrestler who we will not name, and uh, like the defecate to be shut right towards his face. He especially likes it when it's loose, when it's a uh, diarrhea, very liquidy, because Joe oh, Christie, God. I throw Joe into the bus right now. Joe loves him some shit. So, Joe, this story is for you, Barry. Once again, a fine, fine, fun-filled episode. I think we're ready for the go home. What do you think?
1: I think so. This is the highlight of my week, Jeff. When we can sit here, we can talk. This this week too, there, there our subjects were so varied. There was so much to discuss. Yes. I don't know tonight though, Jeff. I've got no more Cobra Kai. Oh no. Where do I go? Is Narcos? Tonight- I was going to say, is this it? Now, I'm telling you, Narcos? I'm uh, about
0: the three episodes into season two. It is fucking outstanding. All right, Narcos. It is tonight. I start Netflix. season one. Netflix yes, done. Man. And I'm going to want uh, you as you go along to tell me what you think, uh, who you like, who you don't like. Well, there's really not anybody. I mean, it, it's, it's like the cartel. There's not a lot of likable people. So, but <laughs> I, I will say, on it. behalf of our producer, the sweet man Lou Kippelman, dealing with Roto Rooter right now. But that's another story for another time. And my co-host Barry Rose, waiting to go out to eat with his lovely daughter Zoe. I am Jeff Bowdron. We are a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take us home, Lou.